Welcome back to Manifest Destiny. Did you miss us? We took a little impromptu break because Blair fucked off to Florida and didn't tell anyone until she was down there. It's a mid-season break. It's a mid-season break. I mean, it did work out. We're six episodes in. This is our seventh. Or is this our sixth? I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. Wasn't our strong suit. Not even But Blair is back. She's bronzed. She's here to tell us, you know, just a little bit about the micropenis of America. What were your experiences? Um, oh, my God. It's not, like, literally, I will say, so I was visiting my two of my friends that are, like, kind of became snowbirds for the winter with COVID, and I was literally like, oh, Florida. America's- are they octogenarians, or are they are? Oh, no, they are literally... It's really funny. One of them, she's our age and she's engaged and her fiance has a job in, in New York and she's been down there for two and a half months without him. You love to see and it. And they've been getting in these fights where he's like, uh, this is like a sickness and a health thing. You can't just leave me because you got cold. And she's like, but I can. And I did. Um, <laughs> and you love to see it, honestly. You um, do love to see it. But yeah, so all young people. But it was great because um, I really got to see. Well, also, so I, I called Florida America's dick to them. And for some oh. reason, they both have spent a ton of time in Florida, way more than me. And they'd never heard it before, and they thought it was the funniest thing ever. Wait, like, really? They looked at me like I was a freaking genius. Like, I was like Jerry Seinfeld doing stand-up. I was like... Are you kidding me? I, I feel like the only people I know that ever refer to Florida refer, refer to it as America's I dick. know, but people in Florida cannot take a fucking joke about Florida. That's which true. Is, which is unfortunate. But it's just like, why not? The punchlines write themselves in Florida. I mean, they well, literally have the Florida man joke because Florida is so insane. What I love about Florida, though, is like, it is everything. It's a microcosm of America. It is everything this world has to offer. Like, you literally have, like, women in thong bikinis, like, shaking their asses on the beach. And then, like, you turn on the radio and there's, like, a fire and brimstone preacher being, like, we're all going to burn in hell. Like, and it's wild. It's a wild. And then you have, like, these, like, really, like, Jewish elite East Coast people that come down for the winter. And then there's, like, literal white trash and I'm like washed (laughs) in from the fucking gulf and it is amazing like I just love everything about it like I'm so depressed it is like an anthropologist's dream like every time I've gone to Florida I'm not really that interested in like the beach scene or the party scene I'm just interested in people watching and I would love I almost wrote my thesis in college about Florida specifically because it's just so fast. It has so many different influences. Like it has the French influences, the yeah. Spanish, Spanish influences. Spanish Florida. I was just learning about Spanish Florida. And it's Florida also today. like people think of it as its own little thing, but it was like the third state to secede. Like it's very yeah. much still the South. So It um, very much still has that energy too. Like Florida feels like part of the U.S., but like the same way Texas feels part of the U.S., it's deeply American, but also in like a way that makes you afraid. <laughs> like I like this, but I fear it. Such a good way to put it. I love it, but fear it. But yeah, oh God, it was so warm. I'm so Ugh. depressed. Um, yeah, so this is so this is how we're coping with winter. It's just giving you more history. I mean, uh, I had to get you here tooth and nail. I thought you weren't going to come back. We I, were going to try mean, and record down in Florida. She literally blew me off recording not <laughs> once but twice to go have like sunset dinners with her friend's parents. Like, what, is this you like a kinky thing? It's like, not a kinky confused. thing, but I will say... Rebecca and I usually record at like three or four and, you know. That's... And yes, we do drink at three or and four. And we do drink at three or four. It's 3.57 right now. I'm on my second glass of wine. 
but yeah, I mean, we, but like parents in Florida, they're eating at six and they're oh, yeah. doing their, they're doing their cocktails at 430. So yep. if you're, if you want to show some face, kiss that ring of your friends yep. and parents that you're visiting, you're doing it early. Um, but I mean, I'm happy to be back to this frozen fucking tundra that I call home and I'm ready. Let's fucking do it. I- I'm really excited for your ID today because I don't know a single thing about the person you're going to be telling us and about And that today. is the deepest travesty in American life because wow. I just randomly decided to do this person and I swear to you I have found a new idol like I found a wow. new person to worship at the altar of like icon shit so I wow. will be talking today about Alice Roosevelt Longworth um the daughter of Teddy Roosevelt who we all we all know and love Teddy he gets so Walk much good softly press. And carry a big stick walk softly carry a big stick and he is just you know, so in the forefront of our minds is like sassy men, like cerebral, intellectual man, but also like loves the wilderness. And his daughter was cut from the same fucking cloth and she's an icon. Um, her, she was born February 12th, 1884, which is, um, she's an Aquarius, obviously. You'll learn more about that. But basically Aquarians are the rebels of the Zodiac. Like they just do their own thing. They're super mm-hmm. unapologetic. They're air signs, so they're still pretty cerebral, very intelligent, and they get a bad rep for, I mean, a a bad rep that they deserve for being kind of aloof and withdrawn. I definitely have that side. I think that's my, like, cuspy Uh Aquarian side. I can be very, like, withholding. Yes. I mean, Capricorns are withholding, too. Great. I got it on both sides. It's all bad. It's all bad. Um, No, but I mean, I love, I love an Aquarius. I'm, I'm a Gemini. It's like our soulmate sign, like, Outcast's first album was called Equemini because Andre Come 2000 on. is a Gemini and Big Boy's an Aquarius and that's why they're wow. so creative together and amazing but yeah so anyway so I've always loved all Aquarians um but so anyway she's a writer and um she's ultimately a, so- a socialite and she's the oldest child of U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt so sorry so Theodore Roosevelt is her father and Alice Hathaway Lee is her mother and she gives birth, everything seems to be going fine, whatever, whatever. <laughs> if you make it through the first 24 hours when you give birth back then, nobody's really worried about you. And all of a sudden, two days later, her kidneys failed and she dies when Alice is two days old. Also, it's Valentine's oh Day, which I feel like wasn't a big thing back then, but it's still really sad. And then to add to the sadness and just the general... Wait, just her kidneys failed because of childbirth or did she have an existing issue? Um, I mean... I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure that, you know. I'm a doctor in my mind, so this feels important to me. Yeah, it was undiagnosed kidney failure. And so so then 11 hours earlier that same day that Theodore Roosevelt's wife dies, his mother had died of typhoid fever. So he lost his wife and his mother on this exact same day, and he's a two-day-old baby daughter. Um, wow. And there's actually, I'll post it to Instagram because it's one of my favorite pictures. I used to be reblogging it on Tumblr via <laughs> Visa Vis 2010. But um, Teddy Roosevelt wrote in his diary that day, it literally says like February 14th, 19, or 1884. And it's just a big X. And underneath it just says, the light has gone from my life. And he was so fucking deeply depressed losing his mom and his wife on the same day that he cannot bear to think about his wife. He almost never speaks about her again. Um, what, you weren't allowed to mention Alice in his presence, um, the wife. And he even omits her name from his autobiography because that's how painful it was. So, like, we know from just accounts of their relationship that it was super passionate, but it's also just, like, he was so devastated that he basically 
um, headed west. He moved to a ranch in North Dakota and was like cattle herding for several years after this happened because he was so heartbroken. He was like completely removed from public life, was like, I'm never going back. I'm not going to be a politician. Um, and, th- and he does a lot of crazy stuff during this period that like could be its own, its own episode. Like he goes into the Amazon. He's like just cattle herding, going crazy. But Oh, I had no idea about any of this. Oh, my God. Oh, well, I have to do that another time then. He, there's an incredible book called River of Doubt where it's all about Teddy Roosevelt, like, coming to terms with the loss, but also, like, almost dying on the Amazon River. <laughs> it's crazy. So he's a politician at this point, but he's not run for anything serious. Like, what sort of office was he holding? Um, You know, I don't know. But he's definitely apolitical and B, he's, like... From this incredibly powerful, like, Oyster Bay Roosevelt family, he's, like, very much on the scene, um, and he, he, like, literally had his old building. Oh, he was an assemblyman. I just looked it up. A state assemblyman. Yeah, sorry. He was a state assemblyman, but he has, like, a full block of, of West 57th Street right below the park in New York. Like, he, they're loaded as all hell. And okay. he's just a very influential guy, like, uh, sitting on every board. I mean, remember how we talked about he was on the board of the Statue of Liberty when he was, like, 50? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. They're like, we like this young guy. We need a, a token young he person like here. like a real Teddy's joiner. precocious. Yeah. So basically, he lives. He leaves his infant daughter in the care of his sister, Anna. Um, wow. Known as Baby or shit. Bi. Not king shit. Like, pretty, pretty fucked up. But apparently, like, there's a he lot. He had to go find himself. He, he pulled a Cheryl. What's her name? Cheryl Strait. Cheryl Strait, yeah. Put some respect in her name. She chose it. Her real name isn't Cheryl Strait. She chose the last name Strait because she felt she she? because she felt she had strayed so far. Yes, come on. You need to read Wild. How I haven't read it. I've resisted. I really like wasn't the whole premise of. Oh my god! No, I hear what you're saying. It actually took me years to read Wild because it became one of those things where I was like, everybody's talking about it. I don't want to read it. That was the initial, like, revulsion Mm -hmm. as I didn't want to do it because it was trendy. And now I'm kind of just like, do I really? There's so many things I want to read. Is this really one of them? But I no, 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 no. You never steer me wrong. So I will read it. It is unbelievable. She's honestly one of my all-time favorite writers. Really? Just based on on, the strength of that. Yes, exactly. I I mean, I follow her on Instagram. Like, okay, this is just a totally aside Cheryl Strait story. (laughs) But um, she was like, yeah, like this one time she Instagram, she was in France. This was like a few years ago. She's like, yeah, so I was taking pictures of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And this guy came up to me and was like, hey, can you take a picture of me? I just completed like a 900-mile bike journey through the Swiss Alps and back to Paris. And she was like, oh, my God, of course, that's so cool. And he's like, yeah, I read this book, Wild, and it really inspired me. And she was like, I'm Cheryl. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're all Cheryl. And she's like, she's like, no, I'm Cheryl. <laughs> Which is just, but like, Wait, Cheryl's so, that's, yeah. she's living in a simulation. No, if that she, happened to me, I'd be like, pack it in. I'm in the um, Truman Show. No, she's amazing. I fucking love her. So, oh, I also wow. was following her daughter for a while on Instagram. Who's that's creepy. literally 14. And her... Mm-hmm. Her daughter's Instagram bio is like raging against the patriarchy since nineteen, <laughs> since two thousand five or like whenever she was born. Um, wow. So anyway, so love Cheryl. So anyway, but basically, even though it's really fucked up that he abandoned his only daughter to eat, pray, love his way around the world, um, <laughs> he he did show a lot of concern when he's writing to Baby or Bye. He's like, I hope Massey Kins will be very cunning I shall dearly love her but again he's like I'm missing her infancy is that really that big of a deal which in retrospect maybe that was really wise (laughs) um daddy issues we all have them um yeah exactly but so Alice loves her loves her like guardian baby her aunt and she said you know if auntie had been a man she would have been president um 
and she's really like moves Alice into this book filled Manhattan like crazy townhouse that's like all library and like really chooses to show Alice like how important reading is how important learning is so then Teddy comes back um, and he is basically uh, he gets married to Edith Kermit Caro who's another prominent socialite and so she's raised by her father and her stepmother and he Teddy goes on to have five other children, but she's kind of apart from that. They're pretty, the age gap is pretty significant. Um, and Bamy was kind of remained in a, mo- a remote figure because she married and moved to London. So her stepmom was like her main maternal figure. And she's also said like, once Auntie Bai went to London, we like weren't really a family. Like she was the glue. Um, so anyway, her, her stepmother was like kind of a huge bitch. Like, I don't really get it, but like <laughs> there were a lot of tensions in the relationship and because she'd known it was like her husband's previous wife's daughter and she'd say terrible things about the first wife to Alice, who's Alice's mother. She'd been like, she's a beautiful but insipid child like fool. Um, and oh she my once, God. So before Alice Hathaway Lee, Alice's mom died, Edith had once angrily told Alice Roosevelt that if her mother had lived, she would have bored Teddy to death. Which is so messed up. Oh my god, that's savage. I know. So basically she was, you know, spoiled with gifts, definitely growing up like a, a rich socialite in, in New York City, like very much on the scene. Um, but so there's like, uh, continues to be tension with her stepmother and her father is like becoming governor of New York. He's starting to take his political career more seriously. Um <laughs> And so basically when he went to be governor of New York and had to, you know, move to like Albany or whatever, he was like, oh, we'll send Alice to like a boarding school, like a conservative school for girls in New York. And Alice wrote, if you send me, I will humiliate you. (laughs) I will do something that will shame you. I tell you, I will. Wait, that's the quote? That is the exact quote. That's what she wrote in her memoir. She was like, I will shame you. So just like a young Claudia Conway. Like just a, yeah, honestly, do you, no, she's so Should much Should we more, do a whole episode on Claudia Conway? Maybe. Maybe. But, but literally, so even though there was all this drama about her stepmother, like when she wrote her memoir later on, Crowded Hours, which was apparently extremely well written and like really speaks to her. It's wit. called Crowded Hours? Isn't it's that beautiful. an epic? Crowded Hours. And it's like all about everybody she knew, all her crowded hours. Um, wow. But anyway, we're getting to that. But she wrote like, it was a simple fact that she didn't love me as much as the other kids. It was obvious, but like she was a really great figure. Like it seemed like in their later years, she'd kind of come around. They to got be, like, past it. They got past it, but like definitely had a little bit of like, you know, blended families, they take some work. You got to work at it. They t- you got to work at it. Um, so anyway, her father, Teddy, takes um, takes office at, with the assassination of William McKinley. Um, and Which I always forget McKinley was assassinated. Like, oh, all the time. Do not sleep on McKinley's assassination. That's, that's actually a really... I used to date a guy who's... Um, that the McKinley was staying at his like great great grandfather's house during the assassination, and then his bro- and his like uncle doctor, or, like great uncle or whatever, was one who attended to him and declared him dead. Is this the same person that's also related to a famous news anchor? No, totally different person. How many people have you dated with significant ties to U.S. history? You're at least by my count <laughs> up to three, at least three. That, I think it's just those three. It's I just mean, that's, that's three more than most people have, so. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I... Blair's walking the walk and talking the talk. <laughs> but so basically, when Roosevelt takes the presidency, he 
people just lose their minds for Alice because she's <laughs> the age of 17. She instantly becomes a fashion icon. And in 1902, she gets to have her debutante ball in the White House. She's the only person to have ever done that, which is icon shit, honestly. Was it just her? Did they invite other? No. Like- it was just her day. It was just her coming out ball. But obviously, there was like a lot of people there. But she wore a gown that became known as Alice Blue. So there's a whole what? color of there's a color of blue just named Alice Blue after her debutante outfit, which Icon. is amazing. Um, so it sparked this huge color trend in women's clothing. You can go anywhere without seeing um, Alice Blue, which there's a Wikipedia page for, and it's just it's like I, it says it's like a oh light it. azure, beautiful. It's like. This is the color of ice flows and glinting in the light. It's literally a picture of ice flows, and it's so nice. It's so it's, nice. It's kind of a cerulean. Mm-hmm, kind of I a cerulean. I just watched Devil Wears Prada. Oh my god, you've got to post <laughs> the picture of her in her Alice oh, blue gown. Oh, I will. It, of she course, looks stunned. She's got like a cold shoulder going on in everything. Yeah, no, she. So basically, she grows into this like great beauty, like her mother, like uh, before the eyes of like the thirsty nation that's always wanted its own royalty. We're like, hell yes, we love Alice. So she was basically known as a huge rule breaker. So this is while her husband, or sorry, while her father was in office, she attended in 15 months. <laughs> so this is a little over a year. She attended 470 dinners. Holy three, shit. 350 balls and 300 parties. And then one, one paper allegedly alleged that she had stripped down to her laundry at a drunken orgy in Newport and danced atop a table. Which I'm sorry, what? Yeah, but apparently it's like not not true. It's proved false, but I choose to believe it. I mean, yes. If you've been to the Boom Boom Room in Newport, you know that shit has gone down. Okay, and this is honestly my favorite sentence I've ever read about anyone. She smoked cigarettes in public, rode in cars with men, stayed out late partying, kept Mm -hmm. a pet snake named Emily Spinach. Emily Emily after her spinster aunt and spinach for its green (gasps) color in the White House. Kept a snake named Emily Spinach in the White House and was seen placing bets with a bookie. Like, amazing. Like, she's everything to me. There was a girl in my college who had a snake and she'd bring it to parties and it was like the (laughs) ultimate power play and like, that's some Alice Roosevelt shit. (laughs) That's some Alice Roosevelt shit. Um, So, anyway. Is it Roosevelt or Roosevelt? I... I fucking mispronounce everything, and I need to know definitively. I think that amongst themselves they say Roosevelt, but I think I don't think they'd correct anyone for saying Roosevelt. Okay, but I want to say it the way they say it, so Roosevelt. Yeah, you're in the fam now. You're in the fam. Great, I'm very excited. (laughs) You're an Oyster Bay Roosevelt. Um, So anyway, she was also um, notoriously put a tack on the chair of um, somebody in the House of Congress, (laughs) like during a session. And he apparently, and they would, it was kind of like a blind item, but she's like, yeah, I did that. But um, (laughs) I won't go into it, who it was. She goes, the the unfortunate fellow leapt up in pain and surprise while she looked away. And then, so in 1905, there's all that crazy stuff happening with like Japan and like maybe even the opium war was then. I don't know. Whatever. Regardless, um, there was a lot of, like, Asian diplomacy happening. It was when we were annexing Hawaii. There was a lot going on with, like, Japan, whatever. So she goes with her secretary of state, her father's secretary of state, on this delegation to Japan, Hawaii, China, the Philippines, because people, like, loved her more than Teddy. And also Teddy was like, I have other stuff to do, domestic issues to tend to. Um, so it was the largest di- diplomatic mission ever done that far in history. Um, and 23 congressmen went along. And so as they're cruising around, like, the Pacific Isles, she meets her future husband, Nicholas Longworth, who was um, 
a congressman. And they fall in love like during in the South Pacific for real. And she jumped into the ship's swimming pool fully clothed. And some of the newspapers, it was with like a random congressman, but some of the newspapers were like, oh, we're going to pretend like this is the guy she's engaged to. So literally, apparently years and years later, Bobby Kennedy like kind of made her a joke and like chided her about it being like, it was outrageous for the time. And Alice, who was like 80, was like, I didn't remove my clothes. Like I was fucking fully clothed. Come for me. Like she was like in her 80s being like, fuck you, Bobby. Anyway, so her father would be working all day, obviously, as the president. And she would just come into the Oval Office completely unbidden all the time and like give her opinion on like domestic and foreign affairs. And one time his friend Owen Wister's in the office and Alice comes in and just like talks shit to him about it. And like, he's like, I'm going to throw her out the window. And then he says, I can either run the country or I can attend to Alice, but I cannot possibly do both. And so she was the center of attention in the social context of her father's presidency. And she obviously loved attention, even though she chafed at the restrictions put in place. Classic Aquarian. And okay, this is a hilarious quote about Teddy Roosevelt. She says, he wants to be the bride at every wedding the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. Oh, which my I'm just God. Like, so she's yes. just calling him out for being a narcissist. Way to drag a white man. Like, it's just amazing. So her antics, you know, won the heart of the American people, and her nickname was Princess Alice, which it's of like, course. yes. Deserved. Of course. So anyway, okay, and then, and then we get to her marriage, which is so epic. So literally right after, while her dad's still in office, she gets engaged to Nicholas Longworth, um, who was a – he became Speaker of the House. He was just a congressman then. Um, but basically, the their relationship solidified during that diplomatic cruise. Um, so he was a really socially prominent guy. And they she got to have her wedding in the White House, too. Like, hell, yeah. How many people have done that? Can't be too many. Um, I Yeah, I don't think too many. I weirdly think one of the Bush daughters got to. I, I could be wrong, Jenna? Though. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I, feel like I know I one of them Jenna got married at Kennebunkport, and one of them got married in the White House. Um, but anyway... So regardless, she was like, had a reputation. So her husband kind of had a reputation of a playboy. So obviously huge wedding, social event of the seasons, more than a thousand guests. And then many thousands gathered outside, hoping for a glimpse of the bride. Like it was like freaking Buckingham palace. And she wears a, she wears an Alice blue wedding dress with an of course, icon. Oh, and then she, have the brand colors. And she dramatically cut the wedding cake with a sword borrowed mm-hmm. from a military aide attending mm-hmm. the reception. Like, That's right. Yes. So immediately after the wedding, they go on this fun honeymoon, you know, whatever, go lots of places. And then while they're while they're bopping around like Europe and like Cuba and stuff for their honeymoon, they stop and meet like all these heads of state. Um, and she's basically a diplomatic windfall to her father because she's so great at these like state dinners. Um, so then they take up residence back in D.C. Um, OK, and then this is where shit gets really real with her, <laughs> with her husband. So she publicly supported um, her father's 1912 bull moose president, presidential candidacy while her husband stayed mental, stayed loyal to his mentor, President Taft. During that election cycle, she appeared on stage with her father's vice presidential candidate, Hiram, Hiram Johnson, in Longworth's own district. <laughs> so she campaigned. Wait, she gave hand against her husband. Not against her husband, but yeah. No, but against the guy he supported. Yes, in, in his, his own district. district. And like, for uh, her dad. And then wow. Longworth, and then he later wa- lost. So Longworth later lost by about 105 votes, loses his seat. And she joked that she was worth at least 100 votes, meaning she was the reason he lost. <laughs> wow. So, however, he was elected again. Did they again. just have like really angry, like, 
Oh, I'm very curious. You know his astrological sign? Like, what was the compatibility here? Were they um, into this kind of banter? Do they like sort of? I would actually, let's look it up. Can yeah, you look it up? Because yeah. I, I don't want to lose my spot. I will. Um, what's, oh, wait, hold on. I actually have it right here. Nicholas Longworth Third. Yeah. He was born December 7th. Oh, my God. Oh, love that. So that, that on its face is a really good match. Because um, that, that's this? a Sagittarius. That's a Sagittarius, which is, you know, <gasps> as we've I'm talked about. it. Really fun. Yeah, you are really killing it, Rebecca. Really fun, energetic party sign, like super direct. Um, they really are able to communicate very well. They're very passionate. They're a fire sign. Like, so you think it would have been kind of like a sexy, flirty thing that she's just like dragging him publicly? Um, yes, kind of. No, no, no. It was definitely not. It caused a permanent chill in oh. their marriage. Okay. But just it's kidding. also like that's the nature of an Aquarius. Like so aloof, she'll campaign the fuck against you in your yeah. own Yeah. I think it's sexy. I'm like very into this. But so any, but I mean, I think I think that this 1914 thing like really went down, and she had um, you know numerous affairs. Okay, <laughs> and, great. Um, it was generally accepted knowledge in DC that she had a long, long ongoing affair with a senator named William Bora. And mm-hmm. the opening of Alice's diaries to historical researchers indicate that Bora was the father of her only daughter, Paulina Longworth, which is epic. Okay. And apparently, like, it's the first, it's like page one of the diary. It's like, hey, I'm assuming you're reading this because I'm dead. Bora is my daughter's father. Okay. Um, so she is known for her brilliant, malicious humor, even in this very sensitive situation. This is, this is the most savage shit I've ever heard. She originally wanted to name her daughter Deborah, like no. Deborah, as in Deborah of Bora. <laughs> Come on. And according to one family friend, everybody called Paulina Aurora Bora. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and was she divorced at this point, or did Longworth no, just no, take no. it? No, no, no. Was they, he just like happy to be cuckolded? He just takes cucked? it. He's happy to be cuckolded. I mean, wow. he had like a Playboy reputation as well, so I'm sure he was like fucking other people too. But okay, like, so it kind of sounds like. But maybe he wasn't this was going like around a... saying Aurora Bora. <laughs> right. Right. He was, he didn't like that joke. That was a little too far. He did not like that joke. Wow. Um, yeah. But he was, he remained a congressman for the rest of his life after he won back the seat that his wife lost him. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, truly, we've probably overused this and by we, I mean me, but like no choice but to stand. No like, choice but to stand. And uh, okay. And it gets better. This is, this is another iconic line. So when it's time for the Roosevelt family to move out of the White House and the Tafts are moving in. Alice buries a voodoo doll of the new first lady, no. Nellie Taft, in the front yard. <laughs> like, I She's love She's a very this powerful witch. I just love her. Um, later, in the Taft White House, banned her from w- her, her former residence. The first but not the last administration to do so. So she was banned from the Taft White House. During Woodrow Wilson's administration, she was banned in 1916 because she made a body joke at Wilson's expense. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh my icon. Was anything off limits for this woman? Like, did like she literally just break? no. She also like, she also actively worked against the entry of the United States into the League of Nations. Okay, well. <laughs> so so during the Great Depression, like many other Americans, you know the a lot of her fortune went away. Like the the Depression hit everybody hard, even the Oyster Bay Roosevelts. So. When that happened, this is, you know, in the 30s, so she's now, like, in her 30s or 40s, she appears in tobacco advertisements to earn money, um, and that's when she also publishes her autobiography, Crowded Hours, which sold out, was super, like, received rave reviews for, like, how, how like, insouciant vitality, it says, um, of just how, Don't like, Don't you have she, a celebrity memoir book club? Like, this feels like an... Uh, yeah, I, 
I think I have a long road ahead of me getting my celebrity book club to read Alice Roosevelt's um, autobiography, but who knows? We're starting to I run mean, out maybe of... we should start an offshoot <laughs> Patreon account where we review uh, historical oh, biographies. Would... Oh my God, hell yeah. Please like, comment, subscribe. Like, comment, um... subscribe if you want a Patreon like yeah. where you have to pay to listen to us talk about it will only take it will only take one like or one comment to, that's to it just one doing. and that's we will it. do it <laughs> um so anyway so alice's wit was you know razor sharp so like she always just had these little quips that were so epic like when her cousin claims that there was grassroots support for public republican presidential candidate wendell willicky um, who was a Republican ho- hope to defeat FDR in 1940. She's like, yeah, the grassroots of 10,000 country clubs. <laughs> wow, wow. Epic, epic. Um, and during the 1940 presidential h- campaign, she publicly p- proclaimed she'd rather vote for Hitler than vote for Franklin for a third term. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a very staunch Republican, but we'll, we'll talk more about her political affiliation. But she also, <laughs> the word used by Wikipedia is demolished. <laughs> Wow. Alice demolished Thomas Dewey, the 1944 opponent of her cousin Franklin, by comparing the pencil-mustached Republican to the bridegroom on the wedding cake. The image stuck, and Governor Dewey lost two consecutive presidential elections. So then, so Paulina, this is just a side note, but she, Paulina, her daughter, marries, you know, a prominent guy, and she dies in 1957 due to an overdose of sleeping pills. So, oh, my God. Yeah, so so sadly, Intentional? She, she outlived her daughter. We don't know. I mean, she didn't seem like the happiest camper, but, like, okay. I don't know. It could have it could have been an accident. I feel like pills, sleeping pills back then were... Yeah, back in the day, they had, like, coke, heroin, everything <laughs> Well, it in was 1957. It was 1957 when she died, so I'm... But, like, I still feel like... Well, acid. Like, yeah, just she could have been acid. You just never know what you're taking to fall asleep. Um, so anyway, not long before Paulina's death, um, they'd kind of talked about, uh, they talked, discussed care of her daughter in such event and, um, Alice wanted to take care of her. So she won custody of her granddaughter and she ended up raising her granddaughter too. And I just love that this is like coven shit. Like I love that she only had a daughter, only had a granddaughter. And I was just like, yo, I'm just a strong, yeah. powerful witch lifting up other women. Women raising other women and only just one where you can imbue them with all of your feminine mystique. I love that. Mm-hmm. So she is. So she raises her granddaughter after her mother tragically dies, which is really sad. Or um, and then from an early age, she's really interested in politics and like steps into an unofficial political advisor role for her father throughout his presidency and even after. Um, she warned her father against challenging the nomination of William Howard Taft in 1912, which was a really crazy election because that was when there was three parties. Um, that was a three-party election, and she took a hardline view of Democrats in her youth um, and was just super conservative, but she supported her, half, her half-brother her half Ted, but in 1924, when, Alice, when FDR ran in 1932, she publicly opposed his candidacy because, as we know about Alice, she doesn't give a fuck. Like, <laughs> FDR is her, like, cousin. Like, they're blood-related, and she's just like, nope, Which not was for good me. enough for him to marry at that point. <laughs> That's true. Um... And, oh yeah, well, we never forget. <laughs> never forget that Eleanor Roosevelt's main name is Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, okay. they're like you know politically, this branch of the family we've always been in our different camps, and our surname is about all we have in common. Um, if I were not a Republican, I would still vote for Mr. Hoover. <laughs> she's like, it's. She's literally like, yeah, yeah, no, we've always had different political views, but even if, 
even if we didn't, I would still not be voting for him. Um, so it's really interesting because she didn't support JFK during the 1960 ele- election, but she became like super um, enamored with the Kennedy family, family once he was in, and she, quote, learned how amusing and attractive Democrats could be. <laughs> wow. Wow. I know, I know. It's just too good. Um, and then she develops this like kind of dynamic friendship with Bobby Kennedy, like, like I said earlier, where Bobby Kennedy would like kind of make jokes about her and she'd just be like, fuck you, Bobby. Like she was kind of like an elder advisor to him and ends up, um, he has relatively thin skin. So there's always these reports of them getting in these fights because obviously Alice is just saying typical savage stuff and yeah, Bobby. she's just wrecking him on and the Bob- and he hates it. <laughs> and he hates it. But so anyway, she privately made fun of his scaling the newly named Mount Kennedy in, Ca- in Canada. She did not like that. Like that was one of the main reasons that they were mad. But so she voted to LBJ. She voted for LBJ, um, who was a Democrat, over Barry Goldwater in 1964 because she believed Goldwater was too mean. <laughs> I mean, literally, who didn't feel that way? Like, but I mean, I also just love that she, but like, it's just like she is a queen, like a true queen. Like she was friends with every single president or had some kind of contentious relationship with every single president. Like every single president in the modern era basically had to fucking answer to Alice But I feel like her like contentiousness is just like everyone was endeared by her because she was just so unrelentingly sassy to everyone. Well, yeah. Well, she she developed a genuine friendship with Richard Nixon when he was vice president, um, and then when he returns to California, she kept in touch and but did not and was just like, it's not over, Richard Nixon, like, you can do it, like, encourages him to reenter politics and invite him to, like, her famous dinners or, like, fun wow. dinner parties. Um, and she was at the wedding of his daughter and, like, invites her to the first formal White House dinner, like, has this huge relationship with him as well. Um, so in 1955, so this is right before her daughter dies, Alice falls and suffers from a broken hip. Um, and then in 1956, she's diagnosed with breast cancer, oh. which in 1956, you get a breast cancer diagnosis. Like it's, that's, yeah. it's, it's game over basically. That's all she wrote. But, and, but then classic, classic freaking Alice, she successfully undergoes like one of the first mastectomies at Come the on. time and cancer wasn't found in the other breasts. So, but then in 1970, it came back, it came in her other breast. she gets full mastectomy. She's just like, whatever, cut them off. I don't give a fuck. Like she was like, experiment, do whatever you want to me. I just want to live. I um, love her. I, she's amazing. So she's a lifelong member of the Republican Party, but when she became close to the Kennedy family and LBJ, her sympathies kind of began to change. Um, okay, and that's she good. was known to have voted for LBJ in 1964, and she really supported Bobby Kennedy in the 1968 Democratic primary. Um, and she, but then so after. She was flexible. She was flexible. She was just a thinking woman. Like, I just yeah. think she had a lot of opinions and was like, like, I think she was just, like, thought for herself and didn't just only vote with party lines. But, yeah, so she, she after Bobby gets assassinated, she goes back to supporting Nixon, who, you know, she's already friends with. And um, her long relationship ends with Nixon at the conclusion of the Watergate scandal, specifically when Nixon quoted her father's diary at his resignation, saying, only if you've been to the lowest valley can you know how great it is to be on the highest mountaintop. And Alice was understandably like, fuck you. Like, don't twist my dad's words to resign in disgrace. So she spat curse words at her television screen as she watched him compare his early <laughs> departure from the White House in the face of probable impeachment to her idealistic young father's loss of his wife and mother on the same day due to illness. Fucked wow. up, Richard Nixon. Wow. But anyway, Nixon, so even despite the fact that their relationship sours, Nixon still calls her like the most uh, interesting conversationalist of like I've ever met. 
and no one, no matter how famous, could ever outshine her. Wow. Um, so she remains... High praise indeed for someone that, you know, you had a bit of a contentious relationship with. I know. I mean, it's iconic. And again, all throughout the age, she has a relationship with Jimmy Carter. She has a relationship with Jerry Ford. Um, and she's like just a Washington fixture. She's just like crushing life, going to all these parties. Um, and then on February 20th, 1980, eight days after her 96th birthday, icon shit, she dies of emphysema and pneumonia. Um, and wow. you know, she, she had a bunch of chronic illnesses. She's buried in Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, which I've been to a bunch. And I'm literally like, am I going to go visit her grave? I mean, like, yes, 100%. What go tomorrow. Woman. What else do you have to do? So 96. 96. Oh, wait, I, I have a couple more of her like quotes, though. So have you guys ever seen on a pillow, like on those like pillow things old lady has, if you can't say something good about someone, sit right here by me. That's her original quote that she's oh often not God. attributed for her. Um, okay, and then we get on to my boy Joe McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy, this is during the Red Scare. He's at a party. I'm sorry, with... did you say my boy? Like, are we down for McCarthy? No, no, we're not down for I just wrote my thesis on McCarthy, that's why. So oh, okay. I was Well, clarify that for the manifestors. Sorry, I wrote... like, what the fuck? <laughs> I wrote my I wrote my thesis on McCarthyism and I at the time at a king size bed in college and like it was so big and I was like always alone. My boyfriend was like not at school and um I had a half, a whole half of my king size bed was just books about Joseph McCarthy. And I was like, are you my boyfriend? <laughs> like, this is so are, we are we dating? Are you married? And I would have like my good days with Joe, my bad days with Joe. So yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I felt that way with Bob. So you know, exactly. one man's Bob Dylan is another man's Joe McCarthy. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, so McCarthy's just being a dick. She's pretty old by this point. And he goes, here's my blind date. Like, I'm going to call you Alice. Um, at a party to Alice, and she says, Senator McCarthy, you are not going to call me Alice. The truckman, the trash man, and the policeman on my block may call me Alice, but you may not. <laughs> <laughs> she wow. also, yeah, just queen shit. She literally, um, she wears, she tells LBJ she wore wide brim hats, wide brim hats so he couldn't kiss her. <laughs> oh my God. And yeah, and then I just want to end this by saying in her 60, in a 60 minutes interview, which I really want to look up, but this was televised in 1974. So six, so she was 90. She just like randomly throws in that she's a hedonist. Oh my God. <laughs> she's like, tell us about your like wonderful life of diplomacy. And she was like, yes, I am a hedonist, sir. <laughs> you didn't ask, but I am. Um, yeah. And that's Alice Roosevelt, as you can clearly see, truly one of the most epic women ever to have lived and like pay homage, show some respect, wear some Alice blue. I'm going to be like the next time I see something that's Alice blue, not a good color on me. I'm buying it. Oh my God. I mean, I feel like it's a good color on anyone. It's like that Robin's egg blue. It looks, wow. I mean, it's a good color on you. It's not a good color on me. I do, I'm a, I'm an autumn. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm excited to incorporate a lot more Alice Blue into my wardrobe, personally. Oh, and God. to stand guess... harder than I've ever stand anyone before. Ever this before. Just ticks a lot of boxes like, for me. Like, exactly. Like, just amazing. And... I live that she got, like, a full double mastectomy long before that was, you know, standard operating procedure. She was like, take them. Fucking take, take them. Take the titties. I'm good. And I'm going to live until I'm 96. Like, unbelievable. Um, unbelievable. And, like, yeah. And basically, like, a, a death sentence. And, like, I also just live for the fact that she had a um, a pet snake named Emily Spinach. Yeah. Just yeah. Emily Spinach is great. House. Also, like, wanting to call her bastard child Deborah after the man <laughs> that, like, impregnated her is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just such an icon. And I Where is, so like, much. our, like, transgressive HBO miniseries take on Alice oh Roosevelt? Like, I'm yeah. asking. 
exactly. I just feel like maybe we're spreading the word. They're gonna make one now. Like I, I love it. I Listen, just you guys are hearing this first, but like when Blair and I start a production company, and yes. actually, we one of our manifestors has suggested that we pitch the story of Robert Smalls to Shonda Rhimes, which is a great oh. idea. And I said Shonda Rhimes would would cast everybody as black, and then Except Robert Smalls as white, and it would be incredible, and yeah. it would just be show Shonda. Um, but I do want to say that part of the reason I did her was because when I did this research originally, it was still Aquarius season. So now that we're out, we're out of. If the you good hadn't time, gone to Florida for a week, <laughs> we would have been on track. Sorry for partying, but regardless, um, Alice is is an iconic Aquarius, and we have no choice but to stand. Yeah, big fan. So for my ID today, we are going to talk about Loving versus Virginia, which is a Supreme Court case. Um, You're familiar. I think, you know, this is one of those things that if you are listening, if you're one of our few listeners that are tuning in because you're in an APUS class, this is one of those things that comes up. But I'm, I don't, I know the story, like I know the bones of it, but I really don't know it very well. But yeah, I, I didn't either. I knew the bones, like I knew the facts again because of APUS, but I hadn't really... Uh gone into this in any sort of great detail okay today well take us away so we got to get some background first and that is that at the beginning at the nascent discovery of america we decided we were just going to go into this new world racist so okay there's this concept that and this is basically just a dressed up word for interracial marriage but it's called anti-miscegenation i knew i was gonna anti-miscegenation anti-miscegenation I literally, before we started recording, I said miscegenation. You practiced a couple times. Ten times to myself. Miscegenation, miscegenation. So anyways, anti-miscegenation. Oh, God. Miscegenation. It's just hard to say. It's fine. I'll do it for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anti-miscegenation. So the anti-miscegenation laws first appeared in Virginia and Maryland. And these are the colonies. So we're talking like before independence. Virginia colony in Maryland started incorporating these laws that basically said that slaves were not allowed to marry white people and that is because they relied so heavily on slavery and that got into you know a question of undermining the status of the white slave owners and the slaves so and especially the white non-slave owners like the poor white people were the most racist people and still fucking are honestly (laughs) So. so it started off that it was just prohibiting a marriage between white people and black slaves but in 1691 the Virginia House of Burgesses passed a law forbidding free black people to marry white people. So it became an issue that was based on race and not class or condition. Mm-hmm. And Maryland then followed suit the following year in 1962, or 1992, rather, 1692. Jesus, God. <laughs> <laughs> and how many drinks have you had, Rebecca? Less than you. I've only had one. So in 1776, when the U.S. declares its independence, seven of the 13 colonies enforced anti-miscegenation laws. You're going to, next time you're going to get it. I have a good feeling. I I don't know what's (laughs) going to happen here. I'm not pleased about it. So even when the North then abolished slavery after independence, these anti-miscegenation laws stayed in place, except for Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania had actually been one of the colonies that was down for this in the beginning. But they had such a Quaker influence at that point that they were like, you know what? This is actually bad. So what do you mean? Had... Quakers love. Quakers are so equal. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, Pencil... no. Sorry. You, you made it sound like 
Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Pennsylvania was originally, like, in the in the beginning of Pennsylvania's history as a colony, they were, like, all about anti-miscegenation laws. But once, like, they, you know... Once William this, Penn got over there, they were like, whatever, They dude. were like, we don't love this so much. So they repealed their laws in 1780. Time goes by. We're now into the 1830s. And now we've got abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison that are getting heated about this. So, like, listen... This is literally the same prejudice as born of slavery. Like, you cannot tell people who to marry. This is super racist. I hate it. And he specifically... <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> he, William Lord Garrison, like, we're going to get into him on another ID, I'm sure, because he is absolutely an icon. But he basically came after Massachusetts, because Massachusetts at this point also had these laws in place. Not surprising. Massachusetts has a rich racist history. That is surprising to me. Just uh, I went think to school of it in Massachusetts. Like a very it's racist northern progressive fuck. state. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I visited you in college. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of negative energy there, but great yeah. mechanical bull. Yeah. Sorry, go on. <laughs> so abolitionists start campaigning to have Massachusetts specific law repealed and that that actually succeeded in 1843. So Massachusetts got rid of these anti-miscegenation laws and that was that. However, as Manifest Destiny continued to drive us west and we started incorporating mm-hmm. new states, mm-hmm. the new slave states were obviously all about this. But even free states like Illinois and California enacted these anti-miscegenation laws when they were founded. So it's not just the South that was doing this. The liberals in California also did it. Uh-huh. And I hate to say this, this is not great for the cause, but Abraham Lincoln, who was obviously anti-slavery, did also say, that, and this was in an 1858 speech he gave in Illinois, that he was opposed to giving blacks the vote, letting them hold office, or intermarry with white people. Well, so, to me, that's him trying to get elected so yeah. that he can fuck shit up. You yeah. know what I mean? We sure. <laughs> but, like, also, I, that gave me some pause. I'm like, okay, Abraham Lincoln, sure. Sure, sure, sure. But, I mean, he did give blacks the right to vote right off that, the bat. Yeah. But, like, that was one of his first acts as president so i mean we can't hate too hard but again he's a problematic fellow yes so civil war etc we get into reconstruction (laughs) civil war etc that is that is a t-shirt i want to have civil war (laughs) etc so during uh the reconstruction era arkansas florida louisiana mississippi texas south carolina and alabama legalized interracial interracial marriage but then after the democrats which are Republicans, again, we got to like switch this language for the time, but the Democrats slash Republicans took back power in the South during what was then called the Redemption Era. And this is basically when all the Jim Crow laws get passed. But in addition to all the Jim Crow laws, they reinstated all of the anti-miscegenation laws. So Alabama specifically, because I have a, a personal issue with Alabama and you will hear this later, they literally had, they were down for this and then like walked it back so bad. So in 1881, Tony Pace, who was a black man, and Mary Cox, a white woman, were arrested in Alabama for having a sexual relationship and charged with living in a state of adultery or fornication and sentenced to two years in prison. And Pace ended up suing the state of Alabama in 1883, arguing that they weren't married and therefore they weren't violating any of the laws. They were like, we were just having sex. Like, we weren't married. (laughs) So this isn't illegal. And they were like, hmm, yeah, I mean, that is a good point, but no. That's a good point. So they ended up basically modifying the laws to say that, like, having sex was also illegal. So then Pace 
later appeals saying that the anti-miscegenation laws violated his 14th Amendment rights, which were supposed to give all U.S. citizens equal protection under the law. But the Supreme Court rules that Alabama's anti-miscegenation laws don't violate the 14th because both races are treated equally and that they're both punished for breaking the law. Okay. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, I guess. I guess technically that's true. You suck, but it is true. That's one way to go. So that was that. So, and I, the reason I bring this up is because Pace versus the state of Alabama is an early precedent for Loving versus Virginia. So between 1913 and 1948, 30 of the 48 existing states enforced anti-miscegenation laws. And the only states that didn't were Connecticut, Holler. Holler. What's that world? <laughs> all the way. New <laughs> Hampshire. for the Constitution state. <laughs> that is, like, you got to be proud of Connecticut for something, and this is it. Connecticut, New Hampshire, New York, New Jersey, Vermont, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Alaska, Hawaii, and D.C. were the only states that never enacted these anti-miscegenation laws. So okay, you know that. where to move. Yeah. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, young Mildred Jeter, who is of Native American, African American, and Portuguese descent, falls in love with her family friend, Richard Loving, who is a white man. And they have kind of an age gap, but once she's kind of, you know, old enough, they start dating, they fall in love. And by the time Mildred turns 18, she became pregnant with Richard's baby. And again, Richard's white and Mildred is of mixed descent, but very much is black passing. Mm -hmm. So once Mildred gets pregnant, Richard moves into the Jeter household to be with them. And they quickly are like, okay, like, this is not going to fly in Virginia. So in June 1958, Mildred and Richard decide to go to D.C. and get married and basically are bypassing Virginia. Because Virginia in 1924 had signed something into the legislature called the Racial Integrity Act, which basically said that interracial marriage was now classified as a crime and wow. punishable by jail time. So they're like, what? we need to avoid this. So we're going to go to D.C. to get married. Mm-hmm. So they do. They get married. They come back to Virginia, and a few weeks later, in the early morning of July 11th, we're talking middle of the night, the police invade her home, hoping what, to catch them. Is he them. there? Yep. Invade their home, but at this point, they're still living in the Jeter household. So okay. Richard Loving is still living with his wife's family, and they're now legally married. So the police catch wind of this, and they invade their home. And the reason I keep saying invade their home in the early hours is because this is very, very similar to... A recent incident that resulted mm-hmm. in a young black woman's death, Brianna Taylor. I thought you weren't going to say her name. It was like kind of the opposite of what we're going for. Right? Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Do we have the same birthday? Oh, I didn't. Brianna know that. Taylor. Yeah, no. So, rest in peace. Rest in power. So they basically the police bust into their home, hoping to catch them in the act of having sex because in Virginia interracial sex is also illegal. And they weren't having sex. And Mildred was like, what are you doing in our home? And they're like, well, you, what are you doing lying in bed with a white man? And she points to their marriage certificate hanging on the wall. And she's like, this is my husband. Like, this is not anything bad. And the police officers are immediately like, well, that's not valid in Virginia. And they haul them both off to jail. So they basically classify in Virginia miscegenation as a, as a felony punishable for up to five years in jail. What year is this again? This is the 1950s. This is oh, that is that is way too late, guys. <laughs> I mean, this whole entire story is way too late. The Lovings were charged because Virginia also had a law that uh, prohibited from interracial couples from getting married out of state and returned to Virginia. So Virginia had really like crossed all of their T's and dotted all their I's. So like, not only is it illegal to get married or have sex in the state, it is also illegal if you leave the state, get married, and come back. So Jesus. 
So on January 6th, 1950, they pled guilty to, or 1960, I'm sorry. They pled guilty to cohabitating as a man and a wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. So they were sentenced to one year in prison. What? This, a year in prison? A year in prison. But they were What offered, are you in for? Falling in love? For like literally I guess getting married. I that's what a lot of women are like, in for, honestly. Making an honest woman of my wife. Like, unbelievable. So Crazy. they were sentenced to a year. But then they were also offered, like, the sentence would be suspended on the condition that they left Virginia and didn't return for at least 25 years. So they're like, fine. I mean, we don't want to go to jail. So they moved to D.C., as one does. Sure. So then, you know, time goes by. We're into the 60s now. The Civil Rights Movement is really picking up steam. 1963, there's the March on Washington, which we will certainly get into in an ID because it is just an iconic moment. Mm-hmm. So in 1964, Mildred is like, you know what? I'm over this. Like, this is so annoying that we can't visit our families in Virginia. They were having all sorts of financial difficulties because they were living in D.C. They wanted to be living in Virginia on their ancestral farm. Like, this is where they wanted to be. They were over it. They're like, this is stupid. So Mildred wrote a letter to who else but Bobby Kennedy. Ugh. And she was like, I don't know what to do. I'm married. I can't live in my home state. I can't be around my family. So Kennedy referred her to the ACLU who assigned the Lovings two volunteer attorneys, Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkopf. Love that name. uh, Gregory Hirsch. If you're listening and your last name is Hirschkopf, hit me up. Slide into the old DMs. I'm single and I'm ready to take your last name. So Cohen and Hirschkopf filed a motion on behalf of the Lovings in the Virginia Circuit Court that basically requested the court to vacate the original criminal judgment and sentence and the sentence because Virginia's miscegenation laws contradicted the 14th. So this, it keeps coming back to the 14th and the ACLU is like, we are prepared to take this all the way. So Cohen and Hirschkopf don't get a response to this motion for almost a year. And they're just like, at this point, like, honestly, fuck all of this. So on October 28th, 1964, they brought a class action suit against the U S district court for the Eastern district of Virginia. And this basically prompted a County judge to finally make some movement so he denied the motion and did it on the grounds that he quoted some like crazy eugenicist german eugenicist he might have been swiss who had said (laughs) that the reason why anti-interracial marriage laws were cool was because that god had originally put all of these people of different races on different continents and it was only because man was rebellious that people mixed and okay, and, and just FYI to everybody, just a reminder that this is now 1960. Yeah. It's like, this is post-Holocaust shit. Yeah. Like, this is like, it's no longer fashionable to be like, oh, I'm a little, I dabble in eugenics. It's like, no, there's fucking six million dead people. Yeah. And he's literally trying to say that it's like a God-given thing and that because people, you know, Africans were on Africa and Europeans were in Europe, oh, that means God. there's no... And it's only because we interfered with God's plan that there's any sort of racial mingling, which is just straight up insane. That is crazy. Truly, truly. On this episode of What the Fuck America, (laughs) like, unbelievable. So the judge that threw all of this out was basically arguing that it wasn't a violation of the Equal Protection Clause because, again, both the white and the non-white spouse were punished equally. And everybody's like, okay, like you said that before with Pace versus Alabama. But again, we are in the late 60s now. Like, how are we still thinking this is okay? So at that point, the ACLU is like, we're appealing this to the Supreme Court. And on July 12th, 1967, the Supreme Court issued a unanimous 9-0 decision that overturned the Loving's criminal convictions and struck down the anti-miscegenation laws that forbade marriage between couples of different races. 9 to, this was a unanimous? 9 to zero. Unanimous Supreme Court wow. decision. Wow that this was unconstitutional 
And they basically went on to say, there's no question that Virginia's miscegenation status rests solely upon distinctions according to race. The statutes proscribe generally accepted conduct if engaged in by members of different races. There can be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classifications violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause, which like about damn time. Like, of course, it violates the Equal Protection Clause. Like this is it is literally insane that they were all saying it didn't because they were punished equally like wild. The Supreme Court also doubled down and ruled that marriage is a basic fundamental human right and depriving you as citizens of that right was unconstitutional. They said, quote, marriage is one of the basic civil rights of man, fundamental to our very existence and survival. To deny this fundamental freedom is so unsupportable a basis as the racial classifications embodied in these statutes. Classification so directly subversive of the principle of equality at the heart of the 14th Amendment is surely to deprive all the state citizens of liberty without due process of law. Wow, that's so shocking that that was the verbiage they chose, and yet gay marriage wasn't legal until, you know. Well, we get into this, because Loving First of Virginia is frequently cited in the gay marriage arguments, because, I mean, that seems pretty cut and dry to me. Yeah, it's it's like a basic civic liberty. It's a human right to marry who you want to marry. So... Despite this, the fact that the Supreme Court made this decision, and at that point now, anti-miscegenation laws were, like, unenforceable, except that many states just were like, nah, we're going to still do that. And I'm looking at you, Alabama. So Alabama continued to enforce the state until the Nixon administration. Like, crazy. Okay. And then it wasn't until the year 2000, the dawn of the new millennium, that Alabama was able to adapt its laws, and they had a vote to decide if they were going to keep these anti-miscegenation language in their constitution or not. And 60% of voters voted to remove it, which means 40% of voters in the year 2000 were like, yeah, we're down for this. We don't want black people and white people to be able to get What? In Alabama? In Alabama. That makes me sick. Isn't that disgusting? Ugh, that like blows my mind. Well, wasn't, wasn't it also kind of like, to me, it's like, was it just a law that had just hadn't been struck down? Like the, like, it's like, I know in Connecticut, there's a law you're not allowed to kiss in front of a church on Sunday, but like. Is there really? That's hilarious. Yes, pretty much. But like, also that's different. Like, you know, you've got like a silly, you know, antiquated law that's not really harming anyone versus a law that is, there's still language in the year 2000 in Alabama's legislature saying that you are not supposed to get married to someone that's not of your Uh same race. Like, insane. So, crazy. And then, of course, when the whole debate about gay marriage came up, this was often quoted as a precedent. And okay. obviously that has been passed, and it is insane. I mean, it just bears repeating. It shouldn't bear repeating, but it does. Like, it is crazy that the government should tell you who you are supposed to love or not and who you are allowed to marry or not. Insane. Crazy. But I want to just, like, wow. dovetail back into the lovings because they deserve our final note and they were very i should say like throughout all of this not necessarily trying to be super political about it they just were in love and wanted to be married and at one point cohen the lawyer asks richard loving during the supreme court hearing like if there's anything he wants the court to know because the lovings didn't show up to the supreme court they didn't testify and all richard loving said i do you think that was they just didn't want to politicize they, it they, they were, were like, really just like just trying to be married and live their life they had kids they were trying to have a livelihood they were like not interested in necessarily uh-huh. like, disrupting the whole system they were just in love and didn't see like what the problem was and thought it was very unfair that they couldn't be married and that's what richard loving says so cohen asks him what do you want me to relate to the court and he says all i want you to tell them is that i love my wife and i think it's very unfair that i can't be with her and uh-huh. that was it that was the extent of it he wasn't 
and I mean, obviously burn the whole system down, but this was like a regular <laughs> couple that just wanted to live their life. And it's not fair to put all of this on them. So I want to just like take a minute and talk about the two of them. And unfortunately, it does kind of end in tragedy because in 1975, a drunk yeah. driver hit a <gasps> <their> car <gasps> in the same county in Virginia, Caroline County, where they'd had all this trouble in Virginia. That I did not know at all. And Richard was killed in the accident <gasps> at no. the tender age of 41. Did they go together? Mildred lost her right eye, but she lived. God. I know. Did they have kids? They did. They had four children, I believe. Oh, that's too many, but good for Mildred them. lived and continued her legacy. So in June 2007, on the 40th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Loving versus Virginia, she issued the following statement. And I think this is... It's oh kind of long, but I'm, I'm going to read it. prepared to cry. I'm prepared to cry. Okay, so she says, My generation was bitterly divided over something that should have been so clear and right. The majority believed that what the judge said, that it was God's plan to keep people apart and that the government should discriminate against people in love. But I have lived long enough now to see big changes. The older generation's fears and prejudice have given away, and today young people realize that if someone loves someone, they have a right to marry. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, not a day goes by that I don't think of Richard and our love, our right to marry, and how much it meant to me to have that freedom to marry the person precious to me, even if others thought he was the wrong kind of person for me to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have that same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people civil rights. I am still not a political person, but I am proud that Richard's and my name is on a court case that helped reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support the freedom to marry for all. That's what loving and loving are all about. Ugh. I mean. Wow. I'm Ugh. a little teary. Wow. And she died the following year. She died a year later of pneumonia after that statement. Wait, do we know their signs? Yes. I'm sorry. I should have given it to you in the beginning. Mildred was born. It's going to break my heart if they're not compatible. Okay. I'm nervous. Me too. July 22nd. Okay. Okay. That's very cuspy. That's like cancer, but very cuspy, Leo. And Richard is 1029, so a Scorpio. Scorpio. Ugh. A Cancer and a Scorpio, that's a great, great, great match. Like, literally, like, so passionate. Like, Cancers are, like, the water sign, like, the sign of home. Like, they're the most domestic sign, and, like, they're so, like, they're both water signs, so they're super driven by their emotions. And, like, Scorpios, Scorpios are, like, they'll go out and get whatever the Cancer needs at home type of thing. Like, they're they're a very symbiotic relationship. So I watched part of the... uh... I think it actually did win some Oscars movie that came out a few years ago, Loving. Mm-hmm. And there's a plot in the movie, and I don't think this. I've been meaning to watch that movie for literally. It's years. really good. It's it's Ruth Nega and uh, Joel Egerton, and it, it, but I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I literally started watching it this afternoon. Yeah. And it was really really good. But they have like a whole plot line in the beginning with him once she gets pregnant, he Ugh. takes her out to a field, and does the whole like. Derek Shepard, Meredith Grey thing, where he's like, you're standing on the kitchen, like, I'm going to build you a house here, (sighs) and starts building the house. I think historically that didn't happen until after they won the Supreme Court case, and they were able to move back to Virginia, and he bought the land that they'd always wanted to buy. But it's it's God, is anybody ever going to fucking take me to a field and tell me this is where the kitchen goes? truly. (laughs) It's the most romantic thing ever. Like, I am sick of living in a world where that's not happening. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, I just think... 2021. 
it's it's the perfect conflation of February being like the month of love, but also Black History Month in that like Ugh, so true. These two people that were just in love and committed changed the course and direction of American history simply because they weren't too afraid to finally just be done. And I think that that's kind of like a big takeaway here is that if you're sick of a law or an obstruction in your way, like get mad about it. And Uh and you you don't have to actually be the one getting that mad. You just have to like speak up. And the fact that Mildred wrote that letter to Bobby Kennedy and that set off the whole waterfall with getting the ACLU involved. And then the lovers Mm -hmm. are kind of like, yeah, you take it away. We're just going to be married and happy. and, And we don't need any of the credit for this. We don't need the public spectacle. We just want to go live our lives. I love that. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm watching the movie this weekend then. Yeah. So that's my recommendation for the week. I know we're trying to slip this in now. So my recommendation would be we all go out and watch Loving and... Wait, what is it on? It's on HBO? It's on Netflix right now. Oh, Jesus. Okay. All right. Yeah, you've got no excuse. I don't know And if you don't have a Netflix account, like, DM us. Like, we're all friends. We're manifestors. We'll share our (laughs) Netflix password at this point. Yeah, totally. Um, Okay, well, I hadn't thought about my recommendation as much as in this is just now me realizing it but okay i mean we can just do one it doesn't have to be i think it's more if it like happens organically we don't need to break the wheel but you also recommended alice roosevelt's biography oh yeah crowded hours baby i mean i i want to see if it's on audiobook like i would love to just be running around on my like normal running route just hear someone be like and I told Joseph McCartney to go fuck him <laughs> and never call me Alice. It was amazing. If um, not, again, part of our Manifest Destiny production company. I love that two, I love that we have two recommendations this week and neither of us have read or watched either no. of them. But that but, happened last week. You did that with, or two weeks ago. Well, no, but now I watched it, the, um, the Black Panthers movie, yeah. and it was unbelievable. Like, everybody okay, needs good. to Follow watch up. it. Very sad, though, and, like, very tough to like be in the right mood like be okay with being sad and I would also say like watch it with someone else like I I, I just feel like certain things like for yeah. me like the, the wire is something like I have to watch with someone else because there are parts of the wire that are actively boring and you like need to be with someone yeah, else like yeah. pushing you along like it's kind of like that so I would say you know grab a loved one grab a panther and just go for it on like a Sunday wow. yeah excellent all right well we will catch you next week okay Catch you on the flippity flop. Oh boy. Bye. Thank you for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a positive review on your preferred podcast platform, but only if you enjoyed it. Looking for a history fix in between episodes of Manifest Destiny? Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Manifest Destiny Pod for exclusive content and quality memes.